Thank you, Pastor Jason, for that warm welcome. It is always a privilege to come preach to you here at GFC. Um, this church will always have a special place in my heart. It was in the fall of 2017 that I preached here for the first time. And uh, that was the first time I had preached at a church other than my own. I became a pastor in 2016, became friends with, with Julian Freeman, and uh, he graciously, unexpectedly invited me to come preach here in the fall of 2017. Maybe some of you were there. I preached on friendship and uh, have been here almost every year since. I think COVID made that a little more difficult. The last time I was here was 2021, when you were still having two services. And uh, so I had twice the amount of preaching to do. Um, but it is, uh, it is such a blessing to be here again this morning. I bring you greetings on behalf of the saints at Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. And uh, we recently finished a series in the book of Hebrews that lasted just over a year. And uh, as I was sending Pastor Jason a few uh, sermon options to bring to you this morning, uh, he recommended that uh, I preach on this text. So let's bow our hearts and pray before the preaching of God's word. Father, your word says that the one that you look to is the one who is broken and contrite and who trembles at your word. How we want that to be a description of our heart's response, to hear your word and not just to look at it with vague passing interest, but with trembling, believing that it is true heeding its warnings and receiving its promises. Thank you that you have given us the gift of your son and your spirit to illuminate your word that it would have a powerful effect in our hearts. And we ask that that would be the case this morning for your namesake. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 12. If you're not there, I invite you to open there again. And as you do, I invite you to consider this question, have you ever made a bad trade? Have you ever made a bad trade? Perhaps when you were a kid, you collected something, and some older kid at school perhaps took advantage of you. When I was a kid, we traded hockey cards at times. Sometimes it was pogs. You remember pogs? These days, it's, uh, it tends to be Pokemon cards. My, my uh, fourth child, Benjamin, he's in grade one, he was just fleeced uh, of a number of different shiny rare cards at school, and that was part of the rationale for a new policy at their school where you cannot bring Pokemon cards anymore. <laughs> well, just a few weeks ago, we enjoyed what is known as the NHL trade deadline, uh, and uh, that's always an exciting time for sports fans, but it can also be a traumatic time for sports fans because you bear all the burdens of bad trades made by your favorite team over the years. For those Leafs fans out there, perhaps you are still living through the trauma of the 2009 trade for Phil Kessel. You remember that? Or perhaps more recently, Nick Foligno in 2021, first round pick for 11 games uh, from that player. Perhaps this year we'll be regretting the first round pick traded for Ryan O'Reilly. Um, but the worst trade in sports history actually didn't happen in Toronto. It actually did not even happen this century. It happened on January 5th, 1920, when the man who is widely considered to be the greatest baseball player of all the time uh, was traded for essentially pennies. 
Babe Ruth. He was playing for the Red Sox at the time as a pitcher, and he had recently helped them to win three World Series by the time he was 24 years old. But the owner of the Red Sox needed money, and he was willing to trade his star pitcher for basically a bag of cash. His contract was sold to the New York Yankees for $125,000. Now, you may be thinking, well, inflation may have made that higher. I did the calculations, and that would be the equivalent of about $3.5 million today. It may seem like a lot of money, but when you consider that uh, the average baseball player's salary exceeds that today, you realize that Babe Ruth was traded for essentially nothing. That was a bad trade. But it does not compare to the trade that our text warns us about today. It's a trade that all of us either have been or will be tempted to make as we continue this race of faith. Hebrews 12, if you're familiar with this book in the Bible, is, uh, creates one of these enduring illustrations of the Christian life. The Christian life is a long-distance race where you can either stop running or you can start running in the wrong direction. And one of the ways that we can go astray is by making this trade, trading the world for the riches of Christ. It is a trade that is illustrated by the story of Esau. Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac, who in turn was the son of Abraham, and therefore Esau was the rightful heir of the promises of God, the promise to bless him in order to be a blessing, the promise to give him land that would be his own forever, a promise to give him heirs. The problem was that Esau did not care about these promises. Indeed, he cared so little about these promises, these precious divine promises from God, that he traded them for a single bowl of soup. And not, not an all-you-can-eat soup fest, not a lifetime supply of soup, a single bowl of soup. It was a bad trade. It was actually one that he would come to regret. But he would never be able to take it back. That is the warning for all who are tempted to train, trade the inheritance we have in Christ for the passing pleasures of this world. You may never be able to take it back. So whether you are being tempted to make this trade now or you've already made this trade to some extent, the world for Christ, and you want to take it back, God has graciously and mercifully given us this warning in Holy Scripture to call us back to himself, that we would not sell our birthright for a bowl of soup. The title of this sermon is The Worst Trade You Could Ever Make. The Worst Trade You Could Ever Make, and our central idea today will be broken up into three points. First, treasure your eternal inheritance. Treasure your eternal inheritance. Second, don't trade it for passing pleasures. And third, if you do, there may be no turning back. First point, treasure your eternal inheritance. If you're wondering why Esau would trade his birthright for a single bowl of soup, the answer is found in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34. It says this, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau made this trade because he despised his birthright. He looked down on it. He did not value it. He, he, he did not think that it was worth anything at all. 
He, in fact, he didn't see it as worth anything more than a single bowl of soup. That means that one of the things that would have stopped him from making this trade was an under, understanding of how immensely valuable his birthright truly was. That is what the author of Hebrews tries to do for us when it comes to our birthright in Christ. He does that in verses 18 to 24. He wants to show us that the surpassing value of the Christian's inheritance so that we would not trade it for the passing pleasures of this world. He does that by contrasting these two mountains. The first is Mount Sinai in verses 18 to 21, and the second is Mount Zion in verses 22 to 24. It was at Sinai, you may recall, that God manifested his holiness. He came down in a cloud of fire and the sound of thunder and a loud trumpet call with a voice that reverberated and shook the earth. He terrified the people of Israel. They, they shook with fear as the mountain trembled. This, this was really an unprecedented moment when God, holy God, that we've been singing about this morning, holy, 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 merciful, and mighty, God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, manifested himself powerfully. When God came down upon Sinai, it instantly became the holiest place on earth. And because of that, God warned them that they, if they would come and touch the mountain, the punishment would be death. No one has the right to approach God, not without a mediator. And this was too much for the people to handle. They trembled. And they actually asked Moses, Moses, don't let this God speak to us again. Let him speak to you. And then you can bring the message to us. But we cannot bear the holiness of this God. Verse 21 in Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, however, that Moses himself trembled with fear. My friends, there, there is something about the holiness of God that we do not grasp and we cannot grasp until we see it for ourselves. If we did, we would tremble, just like Israel trembled. That is what Mount Sinai reveals. It reveals a holy God. But the message here in Hebrews 12 is that this is not the mountain that we have come to. If you are a Christian, you have not come to this mountain that may be touched. You can touch it, you may die as a result of it, but you can touch it. It's a physical mountain. But the Christian has come to the mountain in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion, very different from Mount Sinai. Same God, but different mountain. God is still holy, like he was at Sinai, but now he has made a way for his people to approach him at Zion. This this mountain is not just the place of God's holy manifestation. This mountain is the place of God's holy habitation. It is the city of the living God, a place where God has come to dwell with his people, to make his dwelling place with his people forever. It is the heavenly Jerusalem, a mighty fortress of beauty and strength where he will be our God and we will be his people. Can you imagine this God of Sinai dwelling with sinful men and women as the God of Zion? The God of Sinai choosing to be the God of Zion. How could the one who forbade 
his people from even approaching the mountain to touch it, make his home with sinners like us. And yet that is precisely what the Christian has as his or her inheritance. That is precisely what awaits you. If your faith is in Jesus, it is the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the pinnacle of beauty and the promise of eternal security. It is there that we will rest and rejoice in the presence of God forever without end. Listen to the staggering description of this heavenly city in verses 22 to 24. You have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, into innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal or festal. How do you pronounce that? We don't usually use that in our vocabulary, but, but there's angels here. There, there are human beings like us, and there are angels, and they are gathered to feast. They are dressed as if they were gathering for a festival. They are celebrating. And why? It's because they are in the presence of the redeemed. Remember what Jesus said about the parable of the lost sheep. If even one of these sinners repents, there is more rejoicing in heaven than over 99 who do not need to repent. Well, here we have the angels in the presence of all the redeemed, all of the elect throughout all the generations gather together and they are rejoicing. They are joining in the feasting and, and they are, they, they, there is no greater joy for them than to see these sinners clothed with the righteousness of Christ made clean by the blood of the lamb. The humans are called the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Verse 23, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Why that description? Why, why are the saints called the firstborn? Well, it's because every saint has the rights of a firstborn child. Just like Esau, just like Isaac, his father, the rights of the father pass to the firstborn, and it's the right that he despised. But if you are in Christ, you can be called a firstborn. You have become part of the assembly of all who are firstborn in Christ, enrolled in heaven. Your name is written in heaven as one who is the rightful heir of all the blessings that Christ has purchased for you by his death and by his resurrection. This is not Sinai, my friends. This is no longer a place of fear. This is a place of feasting. And they are feasting. And one day we will be feasting in the presence of God himself, the Holy One, the one who came down on Sinai with fire and thunder. He is here. And he is called the judge of all. He is called the judge of all and rightly, rightfully so. This is echoing the, the holiness of God manifested at Sinai, and if he were only the judge of all, then still none of us could approach him. But the judge of all has given us Jesus. We have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? What is this? There's a number of different Old Testament references in this text scattered really throughout the whole book of Hebrews. And you can't understand Hebrews unless you have read and understood the Old Testament. 
And so if you've ever heard this idea that we can just ditch the Old Testament and go to the New Testament, you won't understand it. It won't mean anything to you. You will not grasp the holiness of this God who has revealed himself not only after the coming of Christ, but throughout all of salvation history, really revealed himself since the creation of time. But Abel was the first person to be murdered in human history. You remember that? Killed by his brother Cain? When God confronted Cain with this murder, God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And so Abel's blood spoke condemnation. It was a testament to Cain's guilt. But Jesus' blood speaks justification, a testament to our innocence. This is the better word that the blood of Jesus speaks than the blood of Abel. His blood comes before the judge of all and cries, this one is innocent. This one belongs to me. This one, all of this one's sins have been paid by my blood. Preaching on this verse, Charles Spurgeon penned this short poem. He wrote, blood hath a voice to pierce the skies. Revenge, the blood of Abel cries. But the rich blood of Jesus slain breathes peace as loud from every vein. My friends, if you are a Christian, this is your eternal inheritance. This is what awaits you. This is the eternal reality that Christ has purchased on your behalf through his death and by his resurrection. You have a place in Mount Zion, the city of the living God. Why is it a city? It's because it's full of people. It's not, a, it's not the cottage of God. You know, it's not the suburban townhouse of God. It is the city of God because it's full of people. And they are living in unbroken fellowship with one another and with their God. You have a place among innumerable angels gathered in festal gathering into the assembly of all the firstborn, including you, enrolled in heaven. You have a place with God, our judge, who has justified us through Jesus, our mediator, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What, what a glorious inheritance. What a staggering reality that awaits us. We should treasure this. We should long for this. We should pray for this. We, we should seek to endure so that we would get this. What we should not do is trade it away. What we should not do is trade it away for passing pleasures. That leads to our second point. Don't trade it away for passing pleasures. Verse 16 tells us that Esau was sexually immoral or unholy. Esau made this trade partly because of who he is. He was a sexually immoral man who was also unholy. This is likely a reference to Genesis chapter 26, which tells us that when Esau was 40 years old, he took two wives. Two wives who were both Hittite women. They were both indigenous to the land of Canaan. And he took these two wives because he wanted them. He lusted after them. He knew that it would be bad for him. He knew that it would undermine his covenant relationship with God, inherited through his father and his grandfather, but he did it anyways. Later on in Genesis 28, when Esau finds out that Isaac sent his twin brother Jacob away to marry a woman from his own tribe, 
from his extended family, Esau realizes that his marriage to these two Canaanite women did not please his parents, and so he takes a third wife, this time a daughter of Ishmael. And so the picture that we get here is that Esau was an impulsive man. He was a man of worldly appetites. He did what he wanted, and he did it when he wanted. He acted without considering the consequences. You could say that he lived in the moment. He did what he felt like doing. Carpe diem. He seized the day, and he did not waste time in satisfying his appetites. I wonder, do you you know someone like that? Or perhaps the more important question is, are you someone like that? Because if you are, you are in danger of following in Esau's footsteps in making a trade that you will regret forever. You may not trade it for a bowl of soup, but it may be something that is the contemporary equivalent of it. If you read the context, you read past chapter 12 into chapter 13, you look at the kinds of things that the author of Hebrews warns his readers and warns us about, you see things like marriage. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. He talks about sexual immorality. One of the things that Esau was led astray by. Then he goes in verse 5, chapter 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's, that's another thing that can lead us astray. It's, it's, it's worldly riches. It's a successful worldly career. Those are the kinds of bowls of soup that professing believers today can trade their eternal inheritance to get. Both represent the corruption of things that God gave us for our good and for his glory. He gave us sex to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. He gave us money to enjoy his bounties and to learn to be generous with what we have. And yet both of these things can exert such a powerful force on the soul that people abandon Christ in order to get them. Do you know someone who has abandoned the faith because they met someone? Someone who perhaps you studied scripture with, prayed with, shared the gospel with for uh, other people who don't yet know Christ? Or do you know believers who have gone astray in the pursuit of worldly riches? Well, that is trading away your birthright for a bowl of soup. It's despising your inheritance. You know, I have six kids, and we have family worship almost every evening over the dinner table. We do some catechism. We read some Bible. We pray through our membership directory, and then we sing a hymn. And uh, we're going through Proverbs right now. Uh, depending on what day it is, determines what proverb we read. So today is March 19. We'll be reading Proverbs 19 tonight. And there are all these blessings in uh, the book of Proverbs that are reserved for the righteous. You know, honor the Lord with your wealth, and your vats will be filled with plenty. I tell my kids, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. God may bless you one day with a successful business. But with that blessing comes a greater responsibility to honor the Lord with your wealth, to give it away. Wealth is meant to be a blessing, but it can easily become a curse. Is it not the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil? Money can make us proud. Money can make us self-sufficient. Money can make us look down on those who have less. 
Money can make us too comfortable in this fleeting and passing world so that we don't want the world to come. It already feels like we have heaven on earth. Why would we want all of this to pass away? So if God gives you wealth, you have a responsibility to steward it for his glory and to guard your heart from falling in love with it. How do you do that? Well, the best way is to give it away. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasures are, the location of your treasures determines where your heart is. So if you have too many treasures in this world, then give them away. And your heart will be reserved for heaven alone. We all know that money can't buy you happiness. Even unbelievers know that. There's a common phrase in our culture today, money can't buy you happiness, though the assumption is that money can still buy you at least comfort, and that's true to some extent, and it can buy you a legacy. Maybe you'll have a building named after you or a statue erected in your memory because you were such a philanthropist or because you built a, uh, an immense corporation. But money, listen, if you study history, you know that money cannot buy you a legacy. You know, you may have heard of the richest people in the world today, you know, Bill Gates, Elon Musk. Actually, when I preached this sermon at my church, uh, Elon Musk's Tesla stock had tanked. So the, the richest man on earth was no longer Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos from Amazon. It was actually a man named Bernard Arnault, the owner of uh, Louis Vuitton and other luxury brands. He has since lost that status. Uh, that's just an illustration of how passing your reputation can be in the world of wealth. We know the richest people in the world today, but let me ask you this. Do you know who was the richest person in the world 50 years ago? Just half a century ago. Who was it? Does anyone know? And does anyone even care? It was a man named Jean-Paul Getty. He was an oil magnate, an American and he held the title as the richest person in the world for three decades. And yet most of you, perhaps all of you, have never heard of him. And now that you know, perhaps you don't even care. This is what awaits the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks of the world. All it takes is 50 years for them to be forgotten by all except those who perhaps work in their field and who study the history of technology. No one will care. You can accumulate all the wealth in the world, but in the end, it's just another bowl of soup. It may be good for a while. It may be tasty. It may be the best bowl of soup you've ever had. But at the end of the day, it is passing away. Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? If gaining the world means forfeiting our souls, if drinking the bowl of soup means losing our inheritance, then we should cry out with the old hymn. Take the world and give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Now, there is one more lesson in our text today, and it is a sobering warning. This is meant to wake us up. And it is the warning that if you trade your inheritance for passing pleasures, 
there may be no turning back. We look at Esau once more in verse 17. It says, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, the story about the soup happened in Genesis 25. This is a reference to what happened in Genesis 27. At this point, Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father, is elderly and blind, and he knows that he is about to return to the dust. But before he dies, he wants to pass on his fatherly blessing to his firstborn son, to Esau. And so he instructs him to go and hunt him some meat and to cook him a dish that he will enjoy. But while he's away, his wife, Rebecca, gets Jacob to appear before him instead. She dresses him up in Esau's clothes so that he'll smell like him. He puts hair on his arms so that he'll feel like him. And it works. Isaac believes that Jacob is Esau and he passes on his blessing. But when Esau shows up, finds out that his brother has taken the blessing that he thought that he deserved as the firstborn son, he is incredibly upset. We are told that he cried out with an exceedingly bitter cry. And he says, bless me, even me also, O father. But it's too late. The blessing had been given to Jacob as it should have been because his birthright was sold those many years ago for that single bowl of lentil soup and there was no turning back for Esau. This verse shows us the, the crucial distinction between remorse and repentance. If you're, if you're a believer, you know that, that the essential elements of coming to Christ are faith and repentance. We know faith, it is belief and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, but, but what is the true essence of repentance? What does that look like? Esau here was remorseful. He cried about what he did. He wished he could take it back. He, he, he longed to return back in time and reverse this trade that he made with his deceitful twin brother and trade back his, this bowl of soup for his birthright. And yet our text says that he found no chance to repent. He was remorseful, but not repentant. So what is the difference? It is the difference between what Paul calls worldly grief and godly grief. Consider what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a godly grief rooted in the person and nature of God himself that leads to repentance. And there is a worldly grief. It is a grief, yes, but it is rooted not in God, but in this world that leads to death. Worldly grief is what you feel when you regret the worldly consequences of your actions. Oh, I wish I could take back those hurtful words that I spoke to that person who was close to me so that we'd still have a relationship. Or I, I wish I could go back and make wiser decisions because now I am suffering the consequences of my foolishness. Or I, I, I wish that I could go back and trade this bowl of soup back for my birthright. That is worldly grief. And Paul tells us that it leads to death. 
It is not repentance. Godly grief that produces repentance is different. It, is, it certainly regrets sin's consequences, but it does not stop there. It rises above the grief of how sin has affected us, and it sees how our sin has offended God. That's what it is most grieved about. It is more grieved about sin's offense against God than about sin's consequences in our lives. Esau had worldly grief. He cried. He regretted it, but he did not repent. He never said to God, I have sinned against you. I have despised my birthright. I have trampled on your promises. Forgive me. Repentance is rooted in a deep sense of grief over our offense against God. And that is why David in Psalm 51 can say, against you, you only have I sinned. Did, did he not sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did he not sin against Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, he sinned against God. And he was deeply aware of how his adultery affected this holy God whom he said he would worship and follow. You think about the parable of the prodigal son. When he has his turning point, what does he say to his, what is that speech that he rehearses that he will share with his father when he returns? He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Writing on repentance, Sinclair Ferguson says this, regret there will be, but the heart of repentance is the lifelong moral and spiritual turnaround of our lives as we submit to the Lord. Esau had remorse, but not repentance. Repentance always involves remorse, but remorse does not always involve repentance. Repentance is marked by a lifelong moral and spiritual turnaround of our lives as we submit to the Lord. The story of Esau warns us about what could happen to us, to our hearts, to our spiritual condition if we do not repent. Verse 22 says that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. My friends, this, this, is, this is difficult teaching in light of what we believe about the perseverance of the saints as those who believe in reformed doctrine, those who believe that once you are saved, you will always be saved, those who believe that God finishes what he starts. And yet, a common theme in Hebrews is stark warning. Not only that your life will go astray or askew if you do not follow the Lord, but you could fall away from the Lord and suffer his eternal punishment and wrath, though you once professed faith in Christ. Read Hebrews chapter six. Maybe I'll preach that here one day. Though when I offer to preach that text to churches, they always say no. <laughs> but this is the same message. This is the same message. Those who once professed faith in Christ can have their hearts so hardened that they will never turn back. So today, are you tempted to trade your birthright for a bowl of soup? Whether you're a young person here, a young adult, or perhaps an older saint. You know, at our church in Sovereign Grace, we have, we have three full-time pastors. Two of us are younger. One of us is older. He just turned 60 this year. And he warns us. He said, I never thought this would be the case, but I realize now that there are young man's sins and there are old man's sins. And old man's sins are just as dangerous. 
They may not be as scandalous. They may not be as focused on our physical desires. They're more subtle. The temptation to become cynical. The temptation to abandon the church because the church has just hurt you or disappointed you or betrayed you. There are sins like that and they are just as deadly as sexual immorality and money. Are you tempted to trade your birthright for a bowl of soup? And then you need to fight it. Fight it with this dual-pronged attack by seeing the glories of the eternal inheritance that we have in Christ and by seeing the fleeting and passing pleasures of the world for what they are. We need both to increase our valuation of our birthright and to decrease our valuation of the bowls of soup that are around us. And that is what will it will take to keep us from making the worst trade we could ever make. Some of you will experience seeing Christ as infinitely glorious before you are tempted to see the world as infinitely glorious. But others will experience the world before you experience Christ. It could be either one. There are, there are a diversity of ways that our experiences, our unique experiences can interact with these, these two realities. I mean, what led me to Christ as a teenager was not that I saw Christ as glorious. What led me as a teenager to Christ is that I saw the world as, as profoundly disappointing. I tasted the bowl of soup, you could say, and found it lacking. And so I began to ask, is there anything else? And that is when God graciously intervened in my life to show me the precious person and work of Jesus Christ who died for my sins and who secured for me an eternal inheritance, a holy habitation in the city of God forever. These verses may be about keeping us from making the worst trade we could ever make, but listen, if you've only ever had the bowl of soup, this, these verses can also propel you to make the best trade you could ever make. You can trade the world for Christ. You can trade the passing pleasures of this world for the eternal inheritance found in Christ. You can trade your bowl of soup for a birthright. But wherever you may be with Jesus, this morning he calls you to come to him. Come to the one whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Come to the one who mediates between sinful man and a holy God, who invites those who may have approached God at Mount Sinai to dwell with him forever on Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And in Christ, you will find your greatest treasure. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take the world, would give us Jesus, for all its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever through eternal years the same. We remember the words of Psalm 73 read earlier in this service, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my portion forever. Let that be our anthem, 
our song of praise, our confession of faith, that this world is fleeting and passing away, but Christ, he abides forever. Let us dwell on the things that are unseen and eternal, and not the things that are seen and temporary, for our eternal joy and for your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.